All right, everybody, good morning. How are we doing? Morning. Hey, it's great to be in God's house, right? All right. For those that are still online, we love you. We, we can't wait to see you back. So um, until then, uh, just know you're loved and missed. And uh, that's where we are. Ed, good to see you, sir. Yeah. Uh-oh. Well, my name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors, and I hope that... Um, as you've listened to people pour out their praises to God, that, that it's either moved your heart closer to God or at least made you wonder, why do people come to a place like this and worship a God they can't see? And, and how does that happen? And, and all of us come to a place like this. Usually what happens is we think we have our lives under control. We think everything's working great. And then what happens is we suddenly realize that like things aren't turning out the way we thought they would. And it's not so much our lives externally, it's the internal sense that spiritually something's wrong, something's missing, and we begin to look for it. And we try to, we try to fill that hole with all kinds of things, and eventually we get to a point where we realize that, that it's just not working. And so sometimes we come to a place like this, and we think that if we learn about Jesus, that, that maybe that'll be the answer. Maybe if we just gain some knowledge, things will start to fall in place. And, and we do, we, we come here and we learn every week, but what happens is, as we learn, we begin to fall in love. And it's the craziest thing. And you start to realize that the God who created you actually is with you and here and present. And, and so we come back every week and we just worship and we, we learn. And the more we learn to surrender, the more He changes us. And the more He changes us, the more we want to come back. And it's just an incredible experience, so I'm glad you're here. We're in a series about Jonah. Probably one of the most famous stories in the Bible and probably one of the most misunderstood or at least superficially understood story in the Bible. And one of the things we're learning is that this book is not a children's book. There's a lot of spiritual depth to it and we're in week five. And we left Jonah on the beach, if you remember last week. Uh, he had just been uh, essentially vomited up by the fish and we were grateful for that, if you remember. Uh, because there is another way to come out of a fish, and we didn't want to see that happen. So, so now he's reluctantly headed to Nineveh. He's obedient, but not with a happy heart. He still hates the Assyrians, but he's going to be obedient because the alternative in desperation was not a good place to go. Obedience can be hard, can it? I mean, often God asks us to be obedient long before he gives us the feelings to want to do it. In fact, that's normal. Normally what happens is you're your obedience is the engine of the train and the feelings come later. They're the caboose. And you'll never get the feelings of wanting to obey unless you take the step of obedience, often when it's the last thing you want to do. Now he's reluctantly headed to Nineveh. He's obedient. He hates the Assyrians. And we're going to see that God is going to bring revival to one of the most decadent, morally corrupt, despicable, pagan cities in the history of mankind. Nineveh is a horrible place, full of terrible, terrible things happening there. And it's the capital of the Assyrians, and it's as bad as any culture, any race that has ever existed, even to today. Yet God decided to bring revival to Nineveh. 
Now, revival brings up a lot of memories for me. I don't know about you, but when I think about revival, uh, I picture a really hot tent out in the summer with mosquitoes everywhere. And, and it was hot every August. I don't know why they did it in August. And it was always for like a week or two weeks. They put a big tent up outside. It's really hot. The mosquitoes are everywhere. And it's next to a perfectly good air-conditioned building. I never quite understood that. And for some reason, you weren't allowed to have a revival service unless you put up a tent. And I honestly thought that revival must have been a church word for hot mosquito-infested tent. But something happened in 1968. 1968, the church I went to was First Baptist Oak Cliff in Dallas. Right next to it was the Assembly of God of Oak Cliff in Dallas. Now, if you were raised Baptist, you were told never to go across the field over there because they do crazy things. And so what happened is that I remember Mr. Bridges, my Sunday school teacher, told us, look, you don't want to go over there. The Holy Spirit's doing things over there. You don't want to go. They dance, they do crazy. You don't want to go. Okay, so as a about an eight-year-old boy, several of us decided it was time to have a mission trip. <laughs> and so we planned this for weeks. We, we planned to be in the sanctuary, and then one of us would leave one at a time. We'd meet outside by the cars. We'd crawl through the field to get over to where the Assembly of God Church is. We'd sneak in, and we'd see what was happening. And we had no idea what to expect. We thought there was going to be craziness happening. So it went really well. We, we snuck over there. We went through the weeds. We crawled over the hill. We went down around, came to the front door, looked at each other like, you know, are we going to do this? Opened the door, I think expecting literally for demons to fly or something. We didn't know what was going to happen. We opened the door. We sit in the back. And it was one of those, no, you go first. No, no, you go first. So four eight-year-old boys covered in now weeds, dirt, uh, those... Uh, Cockaburs, we called them, you know. And so we're sitting in the back of the church, and guess what we found? It was no different than the one we left. But they were having a revival the next week, so we recreated the mission the next week, and turns out it wasn't that much different than what we'd been seeing. We were wholly disappointed. But revival is so much more than a bunch of people deciding to put a tent up and worshiping God, and we're going to talk about that today. Jonah chapter 3, verse 3. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. The second time. I love that God is a God of mulligans. I love that if you screw it up the first time, He often gives you a second chance. And so he's telling them, okay, it's time to go to Nineveh. Arise. Remember I told you to do that before? And instead of rising, you went down. Well, now you're out of the belly of the fish. It's time to rise again. Now this time, God leaves out something. The first time he calls and says, I want you to go to Nineveh. He says, their wickedness has come before me. This time he leaves that out. He probably could have said, and oh, Jonah, your wickedness has now come before me. Go to Nineveh. Call out against it, and I will give you the message. So Jonah arose, and he went to Nineveh, finally, according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. That means big, not wonderful. Three days' journey in breath. Okay, so if you start at the suburbs and you work your way in, you're three days in. 
going a day's journey, so about a third of the way into the city, and he calls out. Now Jonah is going into this city, the most decadent city in the history of mankind most likely. He's going to preach a sermon that God gives him. Think about that. This must be an amazing sermon. Surely God gives Jonah the sermon of all sermons. I mean, every one of us who wants to get people to follow God should just repeat this sermon, right? I mean, it's going to be incredible. These are bad people doing horrible things. It's going to be a fantastic sermon with great illustrations, impressive PowerPoints, maybe a video in the middle. The words are going to bring conviction and repentance. They're going to motivate life change. Let's listen to this incredible sermon. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Boom! There it is. 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. What a sermon! That's it? No mention of sin. No mention of what they've done wrong. No fire, no brimstone. What kind of sermon is this? 40 days and Nineveh is going to be overthrown. That's never going to work, Jonah. You know you've got to have a key point based on Scripture. You've got to make it catchy so people remember. You've got to tell a story about your past so they remember what you talked about on Wednesday. You, you needed at least two illustrations, a couple of funny stories to connect your key points. Some bad wordplay is really cool. Throwing in a few song lyrics from first century rock bands might keep people awake. <laughs> a video could help break it up and at least people reset their attention periodically. You have to have an application point, Jonah. You have to motivate people to change based on the truth of the text. Now, I know your heart may not be in this, but that was lame. You're not going to be a good prophet of God with those kind of sermons. You've got to go learn how to preach. Now, I can't imagine how badly this sermon flopped. So let's keep reading. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. <laughs> what? I spend 30 hours a week on sermons. He comes up with a lame line like that and people are falling on their face. They believed God, they repented of their sins, they fasted, they wore sackcloth from the greatest to the least. That's everybody. I've never preached a sermon where everybody responded. That's everybody, rich, poor, man, woman. Owner, slave, all races, all religious persuasions. Jonah gives a half-hearted, reluctant sermon, eight words, leaving out all the important things. Everyone? That's an exaggeration, right? I mean, traveling preachers, they, they always exaggerate their numbers. It's what they do. Surely not everybody. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. The king stood up, removed his robe, basically saying, I am no longer worthy to be a king. He then covers himself in sackcloth, the, the symbol of humble brokenness and repentance. And then he sits in ashes. I am nothing but to be burned up and used by God. And then he directs the people. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. Let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil ways and from the violence that's in his hands. The king and his nobles. Interesting. 
the king expands his decree not only to man, but to every animal. Not only sackcloth for people, but you got to find sackcloth for the animals. Call out to God, let everybody turn from their wicked ways and the violence in their hands. That's a lot of wickedness and violence. These were horrible people. And then they say the most incredible thing. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. That's incredible. They do all this and they're not even sure it's going to work. Maybe he will. Maybe he'll pay attention to us. They clearly believe the word that God brought to them. Why? Why was Jonah's sermon so powerful? Why would the king and nobles and all the people respond in this way? Jonah walks into a city, doesn't even get downtown. He's only a third of the way in. He says, hey, God's, this foreign God is going to destroy you. What would make them respond? One word, revival. Jonah took a baby step towards God, and God did the rest. We bend, God moves. We bend, God moves. So what happened in Nineveh? Why did they respond this way? These were cruel, mean, violent people, comparable to Hitler at the, at the peak of the Third Reich, and maybe worse. Why were they receptive to this message? This is what I love about God. This is so cool. I've been waiting all week to share that. This is so cool. Okay, so don't just stay awake for the next three minutes. This is so God. Because while Jonah was fleeing, God was at work in Nineveh. The Assyrians were very superstitious people. We have records of their culture. We can read about these events in their records. They were very superstitious, and from the Assyrian omen texts, so in other words, they had these texts that were kind of their scripture, and they had concerns, they were very superstitious, and they were very worried about omens. And there were four omens that freaked them out every time, any one of them. And if all four occurred at once, it was considered completely cataclysmic. The four omens were a total solar eclipse, an epidemic with a famine, a flood, an earthquake, or a flood or earthquake, and an invasion by a foreign army. That's what they're always looking for. So when Jonah was fleeing, God's working in Nineveh. These texts give predictions of what will happen. Just to give you an example, for a solar eclipse. After a solar eclipse, and this is quoting from their, uh, their book, the king will be disposed and killed, and a worthless fellow seize the throne. Another option, the king will die, rain from heaven will flood the land, and there will be a famine. Another, a deity will strike the king, and fire will consume the land. The city walls will be destroyed. So they're very superstitious people. They're watching for these four things. Now we know from comparing the timing of Jonah's contemporary Amos, that Jonah likely claimed to Nineveh during the sailing months, the summer, in one of the years between 1763 and probably 1756. Okay, we just sort of know that from the records. Knowing the dates of the kings of Israel and Judah puts in Amos' ministry 
from 755 to 763. Don't get lost in that. Here's the cool part. Amos 1.1. The words of Amos, which was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and the days of Jeroboam, the son of Johash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. There was a huge earthquake throughout Syria, Palestine, and whatever, and we know that occurred in 755 B.C. It must have been memorable. They didn't even classify the earthquake. Remember the big earthquake? Everybody remembered it. There was a huge earthquake. The great Assyrian earthquake. We know that Nineveh had a horrible plague in 765 B.C. That's number two. June 15th, 763, there was a total solar eclipse over all of Assyria. And in 757, there was a massive earthquake. Okay. The king of the Assyrians took these omens seriously. They'd seen three of four. Earthquake, plague, solar eclipse. And then Jonah comes in, and what does he warn him about? A foreign army is going to come in and destroy you in 40 days. Jonah began to go into the city 40 days and Nineveh will fall. Oops, there it is. A foreign invader is coming. They were completely freaked out. God is so cool. The pagan religions made them superstitious people. That was their weakness. God used their idol worship for his purpose, prepare their hearts for a revival message. Just like the sailors on the boat with Jonah, God was preparing them to be there in that moment. While we're thinking everything's happening with Jonah and the fish, God is over here working on the Assyrians, getting them ready for the message. Just like the circumstances that God arranged for Jonah, just like the ones in your life too. God arranged everything so that when they heard his message, it brought revival. And you may be asking, well, he said he was going to destroy him, and he didn't. Does that make Jonah a false prophet? They weren't destroyed in 40 days. No, for two good reasons. First, God acted in consistency with his word, Jeremiah 18, 7. The instant I speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to pluck up, pull down, or destroy it, if that nation against whom I've spoken turns from its evil, we need to stop here for a minute. And we need to think about our nation. Let me repeat this. Jeremiah eighteen seven. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down, and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I've spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. Jonah's preaching was like the warnings of judgment. It's an invitation to repent. A choice to make. If not, the judgment is coming. You might as well have put, if you do not repent, these are the things that are going to happen. Second, God does judge Nineveh. It's another 150 years later. After they take over and after they rule and after they do all those things, 150 years later, recorded in the book of Nahum in the Bible, God destroys the Assyrians just like he promised. But until then, he's going to use them for his purposes. So it brings the question, what's revival? 
J, uh, revival at its core is God at work bringing his people back, bringing them back alive spiritually. That's what revival is. At the hospital, we often revive people. God revives spirits. A revival is God's move, not yours. Revival is something that God chooses to do in a moment, in an era. And what he does is he awakens people spiritually. People who have been resisting God suddenly see the truth. It's a God thing. It's not something we do. It's something that God does. Revival is the return of life, new life for us individually, as a church, as a community, as a nation, as a world. Revival is an outpouring of God and his people when Christians repent of their sins, renew their love to God, reconnect themselves to God's purposes, invest extended time in prayer, communion with God, meditation, and experience huge blessings in Christian service. Repentance begins with believing God, and as we believe him and we believe his word, he begins to transform our life. The people of Nineveh proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth. Repentance means doing something in response to the word, the movement of God. If repentance is anything, it's not business as usual. When someone repents, it means something has to change. Something has to be different about them and their lives. Repentance means crying out to God, coming to God with passion and seriousness about your sin, owning your sin, carrying the weight of what you've done, both to God and to people. You see, that's a step that many people skip in the church. You have to come to Jesus with a brokenness. It's not just a decision to decide to say a prayer and follow Jesus. You've got to be broken in your heart. You've got to cry out for a Savior because you realize you need to be saved. If you've not had a moment where your sins have been so heavy and so powerful and so much weighing you down that you had to cry out to God, I would just ask God to move you that direction. So much modern repentance is full of excuses and reasons why we've sinned. It's not repentance at all. It's an attempt to justify and excuse our sins to God as if we're talking to another person. Nevertheless, you sinned or you didn't. If you did, there's no excuse. And if you haven't, there's no need to repent. But repentance is recognizing what God already knows, and repentance and excuses don't go together. Repentance means crying out to God. It means to change your mind and turn from your sinful actions. Jonah could more effectively preach the message of repentance because he knew he needed to repent himself. Being a repentant sinner didn't disqualify Jonah from preaching about repentance, thank God, or I wouldn't be up here. But it made his preaching all the more effective because Jonah knows what it means to need to be saved by God, to be in rebellion, to be running from God, to stop what you're doing and turn back towards God. He understood what God is asking the Ninevites to do. Revival is a supernatural response to God's message brought by the Holy Spirit. 
It's a gospel bomb dropped on people. It's a spiritual resurrection that comes from God. It turns out that when revival comes, God has prepared the people. And what's happening is so clearly not the pastor or the preacher or the church. It's God awakening His people to spiritual revival. Now there have been certain seasons called revivals when God has poured out His Spirit on people. And He promises to pour out His Spirit again on people in the end times. These times, these these moments have been called awakenings. It's almost like the nation all at once had a consciousness of God and they woke up. And they began to turn towards God. And it was clearly something that was out of the ordinary. People from all walks of life suddenly are flocking into churches. And they're coming to the altar before the sermon is even done. And they realize the depth and weight of their sin. And they're broken in repentance. And they fall at the the altar and just cry out to God to save them. It's an incredible moment. There are many great revivals. The first great awakening was in 1734. 1734, Northampton, Massachusetts. A young man named Jonathan Edwards was the pastor, and after months of fruitless labor, he reported five or six people were converted. And one was a young woman, and he wrote, she's been the greatest company keepers in the whole town. That tells you what her job was. He feared her conversion would douse the flame, but quite the opposite. 300 souls converted in six months out of a town of a thousand people. He wrote his book, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. People responded to that. The news spread like wildfire. Similar revivals broke out in over 100 towns, starting in Philadelphia, 1739. George Whitfield's preaching was like striking a match to what was already undergoing an awakening. An estimated 80% of America's 900,000 colonists personally heard Whitfield preach, and he was the America's first celebrity. The second awakening, 1800 to 1840. In 1800, only one in 15 of America's population of 5 million belonged to an evangelical church. Presbyterian minister James McGrady presented a strange spiritual things were starting to happen in Logan County, Kentucky. The resulting camp meetings drew thousands from as far away as Ohio. Reverend Gardner Spring reported that for the next 25 years, not a single month passed by without news of revival breaking out somewhere in the U.S. In 1824, Charles Finney began a career that would convert 500,000 people to Christ. 100,000 were converted in Rochester, New York in one year alone, causing revival to spread to 1,500 towns. By 1850, just prior to the Civil War, The nation's population exploded to 23 million, and attendance in church was now up to 15%. The urban revivals, 1875, Dwight Moody participated in a revival and swept Chicago. He later conducted revivals throughout Britain, converted 2.5 million people, returned home, began revivals in the U.S. Hundreds of thousands were converted, millions were inspired, Americans were shifting away from the Christian perspective. Darwinism was beginning to come in. Science was beginning to come in. Humanism was beginning to move. And God had made a statement with these revivals. But the one I really want to talk about is something that happened worldwide. It was a worldwide movement of God. 
It was a pandemic of the Spirit. It popped up everywhere. There were hot centers all over the place. It became a crazy time where it was breaking out everywhere. It's very similar to COVID-19. People were, it was just infecting everybody. It was going everywhere. It was known as the Welsh Revival, the Azusa Street Revival in Los Angeles, the Korean Pentecost, the Manchurian Revival, the Mizo Outpouring. It was the most extensive evangelical outpouring of all time. Five million people came to Christ in two years. The Moody Bible Institute, the Keswick Convention in England, called their nations to prayer at the end of the 19th century. Soon, evangelic campaigns erupted in South Africa, Bermuda, Japan, Australia, and New Zealand. But I want to focus on the awakening in Wales that extended to the U.S. October 30th, 1904, Evan Roberts was a leader of a, young, a group of young adults in a church. He believed God had given him a vision for revival in Wales. He started praying with 17 students at his church. Within a week, parents started showing up wanting to know why their kids had changed so much. The prayer they repetitively prayed over and over was, God, bend us. Don't break us, bend us. English papers said this, a remarkable religious revival is now taking place in Lagor. For some days, a young man named Evan Roberts, a native of Lagor, has been causing great surprise at Mariah Chapel. The place has been besieged by dense crowds of people unable to obtain admission. Such excitement has prevailed that the road on which the chapel is situated has been lined with people from end to end. His statements have been the most stirring effects upon his listeners. Many who have disbelieved Christianity for years are returning to the fold of their younger days. One night, so great was the enthusiasm invoked by the young revivalist that after his sermon, which lasted two hours, after his sermon, which lasted two hours, <laughs> can we just pause here for a minute? His sermon lasted two hours, okay? Did I say that? Okay, good. The vast congregation remained praying and singing until 2.30 in the morning. Shopkeepers are closing early in order to get a place in the chapel, and the tin and steel workers fill up the place in their work clothes. November 12th, the meeting at Brentag Congregational Church on Thursday night was attended by those remarkable scenes which have been at previous meetings, memorable in the life history of so many inhabitants in this area. The proceeding commenced at 7 o'clock, and they lasted without a break until 3 o'clock on Friday morning. During the whole time, this congregation were under the influence of deep religious fervor and exaltation. There were about 400 people present in the chapel when I took my seat at about 9 o'clock, the writer says. Mr. Roberts is a young man of rather striking appearance. He is tall and distinguished looking with an intellectual air about his clean shaven face. His eyes are piercing in their brightness and the pallor of his countenance seems to suggest that those nightly vigils are taking their toll on him. There was, however, no suggestion of fatigue in his conduct of the meeting. There's nothing theatrical about his preaching. He does not seek to terrify his hearers and eternal torment finds no place in his theology. Rather, does he reason with people and show them by persuasion a more excellent way? I've been to many minutes in the building before I felt this was no ordinary gathering. The preachers, too, did not remain in their usual seat, for most of the party walked up and down the aisles, open Bible in hand, exhorting each other and kneeling with a third person to implore blessing from the throne of grace. Churches packed out across the nation. 100,000 new believers in two years. The use of alcohol dropped by over 70%. Local taverns went out of business. 
Crime reduced so much that judges wore white gloves, indicating that there were no crimes of violence that day. Police became unemployed. They were no longer needed. Local mines shut down, but this is great. Local mines shut down because the mules, which ran the mine, stopped responding to people who wouldn't curse at them. They treated the animals with respect and stopped using foul language, and the animals didn't know what to do. This revival swept across Great Britain, Ireland, and Scotland, then to Sweden, Finland, Denmark, Germany, France, and all the European nations were touched by this as well. Eventually, it went worldwide, breaking out in Canada, Africa, Brazil, Chile, Indonesia, Korea, and Burma. In the United States, meetings attracted Many. In Philadelphia, Methodists report that 6,100 new converts in membership. Atlantic City, pastors said there were only 50% of the adults were unconverted in the city. They had converted over half their town. New York, on a single day in church, 364 received Christ. Paducah, Kentucky, First Baptist Church, 1,000 people came to Christ in just a few moments. Southern Baptist Convention reported that baptisms increased over 25% in a single year. Burlington, Ohio, or Burlington, Iowa, every store and factory closed to allow employees to attend prayer meetings. Denver, almost every place of business closed at 11.30 a.m. as 12,000 gathered for prayer meetings in downtown theaters and halls. Every school in town and the Colorado State Legislature closed for a day of prayer. Portland, virtually the entire city shut down from 11 to 2.30 for noon prayer meetings throughout the city. Los Angeles, United Meetings attracted 180,000 people. In 1907, a small church in Los Angeles, crowds grew so fast that the church building actually collapsed. The floor collapsed. There were so many people in it. They moved to a vacated Methodist church on Azusa Street in Los Angeles. It became the revival center of the American Pentecostal movement, and it became the largest growing Protestant movement of the century. Midnight Grand Opera House in L.A. was full of prostitutes and alcoholics begging for God to save them, seeking salvation. The wave of revival in the U.S. is what led to the 18th Amendment prohibiting the sale of alcohol beverages because so many people had realized the ills of alcohol based on their newfound spiritual faith. So let me talk about revival for a minute. There are 10 characteristics I want to go over quickly about revival. Remember, revival is not something we do. It's something God brings to us. The first thing is timing. Revivals emerge during times of spiritual and moral decline, which move God's people to intense prayer. Revivals start out in times of moral decline that move God's people to intense prayer. Second, prayer. God puts a longing into the hearts of many to begin to pray for revival. It's our desperation moment. We realize as a nation and as a group of Christians and as a group of believers that we need God because it's not working on our own. That if something's going to happen in America, it's got to be God that brings it. And we've got to be bent to allow that to happen. I believe COVID is a wake-up call for the church. Third is the word. The word is preached and people repent and fall based on the word. 
Almost every time revival breaks out, there is an outpouring, a focus on the truth of the Word of God. It's not some charismatic guy who, who wants you to believe that God wants you to just be happy. It's the truth of the Word of God that is a two-edged sword that penetrates to your heart, makes you realize you're a sinner, makes you realize you need to be saved. Too many people in American churches think the Word, instead of being a two-edged sword, is a butter knife. It convicts. It makes you fall on your face and realize you've got to surrender to a holy God. Fourth thing, the Holy Spirit. During revival, the Holy Spirit takes people to spiritual depths they could never be at on their own. It is an outpouring of the movement of God. Fifth thing in every revival is profound conviction. Affected sinners are often inconsolable and can be relieved with nothing but surrender to Christ. Sixth thing, glory for God. It is so obvious in every revival that what's happening is of God. People will talk about in revival that they can't even get themselves to go near the church because the power of the Spirit is so strong. There was a revival where people described the church on the hill. They said they couldn't get up the hill because in their brokenness they realized they just had to fall where they were and repent. In revival, there's always glory for God because it's God doing it. Seventh thing, reformation, reformation and renewal. Revival isn't something that just happens and then goes away. It does. There's a time when the revival starts and stops, but the impact, the outpouring of what happens from that revival goes on for generations. It produces lasting fruit. Many ministries are founded, and society experiences a reform of morals as more and more people convert. And what you'll see is many ministries are started during revival that continue for generations thereafter. Number eight is manifestations like fainting, prayer, and, and miracles, that they happen, and it's, it's God once again saying, I'm here and I'm doing this. Ninth thing is revivals are always messy. There's always controversy about the miracles, about what's really happening, about the outpouring of God. People critique it, people criticize it, people try to put down what God is doing. There's suspicion about the people. There's suspicion about the pastors. There's theological disputes. And while all that's going on, people are falling on their face at the altar, surrendering to God. Tenth thing is it's cyclical. Revivals inevitably crest and decline. God pours out his spirit on people. And for whatever reason, God's purpose, there's a, a time that it starts. And then there's a time, not that people stop following, it's just the outpouring of the Spirit. It's like God saying, okay, for the next year or two, I'm going to make myself really aware to you people, and you need to respond. And at some point, he says, okay. And it tailors back down. Now, the majority of Americans in our country believe our country is going downhill. Yet church attendance has had relatively steady since 1990. America's added 50,000 new churches in the last 20 years. And at the end of the... At, um, I'm sorry, the last 20 years to total 350,000. That's a lot of churches. The number of born-again Christians has remained steady at 46%. So let me ask you this question. Giving the state of moral and spiritual decay, how is that possible? 46% of Americans are evangelical Christians and our country looks like it looks, really? The answer is simple. 
Today, Christianity is prevalent, but not powerful. Christianity is present, it's not powerful. We've not had an awakening in America in historic proportion for a very long time. With such a great tradition of revival and awakenings, it's a base from which to start, a a need to counteract the moral and spiritual decline. Our nation appears to be ripe for an outpouring of God. But history tells us that revivals and awakenings can't be manufactured. Nothing, we, we aren't the ones that make it happen. We pray for God to make it happen. These are sovereign acts of mercy and grace by God who loves sinners and pours his love out on them. He supernaturally achieves in a short time what seemed otherwise to be impossible. However, God responds to the prayers of his people. Scriptures tell us that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. But he doesn't tell us to go into the harvest. What does he say? Pray. Pray that God will send people into the harvest. Salvation is always a movement of God, not of man. You don't come to Christ because some man decided to tell you something. You come to Christ because the Holy Spirit convicted you, revealed to you the truth about God, and you responded to that. What happens at the altar is between you and God, not some other person, and you and God. That's revival. We've not seen a worldwide revival in our lifetime, and yet God's word is clear. If my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. Note who's doing the healing. It's not us. We don't need to legislate, we don't need to legislate morality and rule changes. We need to pray that God will make it prevalent. Psalm 85, 6. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Notice what it says here. God, you've got to revive us. See, here's one thing I've learned in the hospital. If you need to be revived, there better be somebody there to do it. Right? So if you need to be revived spiritually, you better pray that God is there with you doing it. God, revive us again. And here's what he says. It's very interesting. Grant us your salvation. Let me just hit on this for a minute. Your salvation is a gift from God given to you from God. It's not something you earn. It's not something you deserve. It's not something you work for. It is from God straight to your heart because he loves you. While the decision belongs to God alone, he gives us the privilege of praying for that day. And he promises to respond to humble, repentant prayer. Every revival started out with groups of people completely in their Popeye moment. Okay, some of you who are younger don't know Popeye, probably. Every Popeye show is the same. It's just like olive oil's closet. They're all the same. Popeye decides to do something. Brutus decides to mess it up. Popeye gets mad. Brutus is a big guy. He can't deal with him. So what does he do? Spinach. He pops a can of spinach, and what does he say? That's all I can stand, and I can't stand no more. 
Revival starts when God's people get on their faces and say, this is all I can stand and I can't stand anymore, God. If our nation's going to change and turn back to you, you have to do it. You need to bring revival. Please, God, revive us. You see, we're dying. It's not something we do. It's something God brings to us because we have fallen on our faces and recognized our need for him. In a sense, we have reached our spiritual desperation where all we can do is look to God to save us. Now, why haven't we seen it? You'll hear people talk, oh, we need to pray for revival. Why have we not seen it? I believe for three reasons. One, we don't believe it can happen. Two, we don't pray for it to happen. We talk about it, but we don't pray about it. Three, I'm not even sure we want it to happen. Now, I must tell you, I didn't come to those conclusions lightly. When I was looking at this text, I began praying, God, why haven't you sent revival again? We can't get too much more decadent than we are. Why don't you send revival? I was frustrated. God, why, why aren't you doing what I'm telling you to do? <laughs> we need revival. You need to send it. Come on, God. After a while, I was convicted. Frank, you don't believe I can do it. And I knew in my heart that I'd given up on God. Oh, sure, I want the seats filled. I want people to follow. I want people to know Christ. I want to change this community. I want to live in a completely different country that actually honors God. I want to be in a different world. But I have to admit, God, I didn't believe you still wanted to do it. In my heart of hearts, I'd given up. I look at our community, our nation, our world. I see brokenness all around us. Fractured families, rampant drug and alcohol use unrestricted materialism, the worship of self, arrogance, and pride, the worship of money, people slaves to debt trying to fill that hole in them with stuff and trying to show it off to everybody else. I look around, I see the murder of babies, violent crimes, sex abuse, abuse of spouses, violence against children, rampant disease, some of which is self-inflicted. Jesus' church looks nothing like him. A political process nauseates me in both directions. And a society of victims are easing their pain with prescriptions and excuses. And truthfully, I've been so focused on end times that I just assume God's winding this thing down. Instead of believing in my heart of hearts that maybe, just maybe, these times are to set us up for one of the greatest revivals to ever occur in the history of mankind. I am passionate about seeing people come to Christ. But there's a sense of urgency about the end times. And I have to admit that I, I believe that maybe God had just decided not to change things, that maybe revival wasn't going to happen and maybe we'd just gone too far. And in the process, I grossly underestimated my God. And God broke me about this. I had to get on my knees and tell God, I, Frank Burns, your pastor, had given up on him. And that I didn't really believe he was going to bring revival. That the best we could hope for was to reach some people before the end. I've been focused on what we could do and had grossly underestimated what God can do. We bend, God moves. And I don't think I'm the only one that's given up on that dream. I think many Christians today have given up on revival. We really don't believe God will do it again. Yet we look back over history and it happens all the time. 
We read about it in Jonah. The Jewish people read the book of Jonah as part of their Yom Kippur services. It reminds them that no one is beyond God's hand, and it reminds them that God brings revival. Every year, the Jewish people on Yom Kippur, the High Holy Day, they read Jonah. Why? To believe again that God will bring revival to the people. We read about revival in the first church as they preached and 3,000 came to know Christ. The early church turned the world upside down. History reflects many revival movements of the Christian church. The Wesleys brought it to England, Jonathan Edwards in the colonial America, Finney brought it to New York, Evan Roberts, the Welsh revival. It would be nice if it happened, but do we really believe it will happen? You see, God says if you pray and you're not praying in faith, you're wasting your time. So what are we to do? Well, the first thing we've got to do is repent. Confess to God that we've really underestimated what he can do and what he will do and what he may desire to do in our world. The next thing, we must pray. Moody said this, every great work of God can be traced to a kneeling figure. Every great work of God can be traced to a kneeling figure. But we can't pray doubting or lacking faith. I said there are three reasons we don't see revival. We don't believe it can happen. We don't pray for it to happen. Deep down, we may not want it to happen. <laughs> you say, what, 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 you don't want it to happen? Committing to revival is inconvenient, by the way. In Acts, the early believers committed themselves to prayer. The Welsh revival started with 17 students at a prayer meeting that went on for hours and days, and nobody wanted to go home because they could feel the presence of God. And then when they got home, they came back to start it up the next evening. Did you notice why the businesses and schools were closing all over the world and amazingly all over America so they could pray at noon? And those prayer meetings lasted hours. There wasn't worship music. There wasn't teaching. People came into empty churches and began praying. They prayed specifically believing that God could do the impossible. They held on to his scripture that says he will heal his land if people will repent and turn. Acts 4.30. And when they had prayed, the place in which they gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Have you ever prayed so hard that the ground shook? Revivals come at unusual times in unusual places, and they are inconvenient. And honestly, I think too many believers are too comfortable and cozy in their salvation. And it's just too easy to wait until the end. How do you know that? I did it. It's so easy to get comfortable. It's so easy to go through the motions. It's so easy just to come here every week and just do our thing and talk about how one day we ought to invite people here and how one day we ought to fill up these seats and how we ought to start praying for people to come to know Christ. But deep down, we're just hanging out comfortable and cozy and not broken about other people. We need to be praying to God not to bring the rapture, not to bring the end times, but to postpone it so we can save more people. Amen. We have to have in our heart of hearts above everything else we do a desire for God to bring revival to this place. 
We need to quit complaining about what's going on out in the world and start doing what God's told us to do, which is to get on our faces and ask God to pray. Ask God to move because we can't fix it. It's gone too far. Jonah 3.10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them and he did not do it. I believe that God wants to bring revival to Remnant. I think he wants to bring it to Sarasota. I think he wants to bring out revival again. The worldwide Welsh revival started with 17 students on their face. I dream of a day when every business in Sarasota closes for noon prayer. When every church is so packed out that the building can't hold them and they spill out into the streets. When churches get far more concerned about reaching the people than figuring out what to do with their buildings. I dream of a day when Planned Parenthood shuts down not because abortions are illegal, but because God brought revival and nobody wants one. I dream of a day when police have nothing to do, courts are empty, and bars serve mostly food. I dream of a day when we're more concerned about bringing revival to America than we are about who gets elected. I can see it now because I had to confess to God that I couldn't see it before. I had to get on my knees and bend. I had to move my heart and become desperate for revival. Church, if we bend, God will move. It's simple. We must become a church that's passionate about praying for revival. God tells us how to bend. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I'll forgive their sin, and I'll heal their land. Jonah took one baby step of obedience, and God brought revival to the Ninevites, even when Jonah still hated them. If God can bring revival in Nineveh, with no better representative than Jonah, and no more gospel than he preached, certainly God can do the same for the United States. But many of us first, we need to confess that in our hearts of hearts, we've given up on God to actually change our world and our nation. We think change comes through an election. We think change comes through politics. We think change comes through how we handle certain circumstances. And yet God says, I'm God. I turn the heart of the king the way I want to go. We need to see a day when whoever we elect is in sackcloth and ashes crying out to God. Maybe you didn't believe it could happen. Maybe you haven't been praying for it to happen. Maybe you don't want to be inconvenienced. I don't know. My people humble themselves, pray, seek my face, turn from their ways. We bend God will move. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you didn't leave salvation up to our efforts. I thank you, God, that you're right now, as we're talking about this, preparing the hearts of people who are going to find Jesus. That while we're trying to figure out what to do, you're just waiting for us to pray and acknowledge that you're the one that does it. God, forgive us when we don't believe you. Forgive us when we sit back secure in our salvation and don't break for those who are yet to be saved. Forgive us, God, when we want to see the end to come, realizing that there are people who don't know you. God, please postpone the rapture until we can work for you. 
Many of us have family and friends and others that we so desperately want to know you. God, would you bring a move? I get asked all the time, pray for my son, pray for my daughter, pray for my family member. They don't believe in you. God, would you drop a love bomb on them? Move your spirit. And God, would you make us a people who pray? God, we want to see the world change. I can't imagine anything more exciting. I hear people talk about all the time how great it would be to be the generation that sees the rapture. I want to be the generation that sees the third awakening. God, we pray for revival. We pray for a movement. God, we're going to bend. We're going to bend out of our convenience. We're going to bend out of our self-arrogance. We're going to bend out of the comfort of our salvation. Break our hearts, God, for what breaks yours. Move this little church to do everything you desire to change this city, this world, and to reach people who don't know you. We love you. We ask it all in Jesus' holy name. Amen. We are going to um, set up a time. I don't know when it is yet because I've got to figure that out. Um, maybe Wednesday nights um, where we're going to meet here um, as just to pray. No music, no teaching. We're going to be here. We're just going to pray. Um, Wednesday night, I think 6 o'clock. Okay? Between now and then, I need you to do some personal work with God. If you don't believe God can bring revival into our community, please stay home until you do. I say that with all the love I can say. If you're attending just because you want to attend and say you were there, that's really cool, but you better bring your heart praying for revival. If you're not broken for people to come to know Christ, just stay home. It's okay. Ask God to work on your heart. Because here's the reason. If we gather together to pray for revival, if we gather together to pray for God's movement and our hearts aren't aligned, and, and we're not all there, then God says we're praying on a whim, and he won't answer the prayer. So Wednesday night, 6 o'clock, right here. Uh, I'll be here. I'd like you to join me, um, and anybody you want to bring. I don't, they got a heartbeat, whatever. They love Jesus. They want to see revival. Just come, and we're going to start praying every Wednesday night, okay? If you can't be here on Wednesday night, that's cool. Find some time during Wednesday evening. Pray. Pray for God to bring revival. Pray for him to break your heart, okay? Why don't you stand up for me? Happy buckets in the back. Please continue to give as God leads. I know these are difficult times for people. Uh, our, fortunately, as a church, we are um, relatively overhead light. Um, and so uh, do that. There are still people that are at home. Uh, praise God for that. They need to be protected. They need to be safe. Please reach out to them. Let them know they're loved. Uh, if you're watching online, we, we can't wait for you to come back. It's good every week to see people. It's like Christmas presents every week when <laughs> people come back. As you go this week, begin to imagine what God could do if we actually believed he could do it. Every passion starts with a burden. Ask God to burden your heart for people that don't know Jesus and to burden your heart for every seat here where somebody's not here. Have a great week. We love you. We'll see you back next week.